Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner-Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world-class talent. Join her here each week on The Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real-life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. So what am I paying attention to at the moment? I had the neatest experience yesterday. So I was having dinner with a client and we had all gotten together the previous week and we're working on mission, vision, values for their company. So this company has been around. It's a family-owned business. Grandpa started it. Dad took it over. He's now in his mid-60s, starting to think about not retiring, really, but sort of backing off and really wants to get a lot of the things that have enabled him to grow the company so much since he inherited it from his dad He wants to get those things in place and really be part of the formal organizational culture before he steps back some. And so we're looking at values. What got the company to where it is and what really we want the values to be of the company going forward, sort of connecting back to that podcast episode that we did recently with Corey Castillo. And so when we were having dinner last night, the son of dad said to me, you know, Janine, when you were talking about mental health, because health was one of the values that we were talking about as something that that might end up being one of the core values of the company. He said, when you were talking about health and you were talking about mental health, you said something that I had never heard before, and it it helped the conversation around mental health land with me in a whole different way. So I'm going to share with you what I what I shared with them, which is I am on a campaign to normalize mental health issues. If I fall down and I break my elbow or I hurt my knee or whatever, I don't have a problem telling you about that. I don't have any shame, uh, maybe other than the fact that (laughs) that I'm a klutz that I fell down. But other than that, I don't have an issue telling you about the fact that I hurt my knee. On the other hand, if what I hurt was something inside me, if what I hurt was my feelings or my dignity, or I suddenly didn't feel safe because of something that was going on, or I no longer felt like my opinion mattered, or I no longer felt like I belonged, or I'm dealing with stuff in my family or with my friends and and I'm struggling with depression. We have a whole other set of conversations. We have a whole other set of stories 
that come into play at that point. And I believe there should be no difference between me telling you that I fell down and I hurt my knee versus there's something going on with me internally and I'm feeling um, depressed or I'm feeling anxious at a level where I'm feeling like I need to get some help. I need to get some support around that. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I firmly believe that when we can get our mental health issues out of the shadows, when we can destigmatize our mental health, we as, as a society, as a community, we have so many more possibilities and opportunities for connection and thriving. That brings me right to our guest for today. Our guest is Lee Chandler, and she is a mediator who revolves, who resolves conflict between people who are stuck with each other. So before you close the company, break up the band or cancel Thanksgiving, call Lee. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. So I'm going to start the way that I often do, which is tell me something that you have become aware of that we are not paying enough attention to. And what's the cost of that unawareness? Okay. Um, so as a mediator, by the time somebody gets into my office, they've been in conflict for a while. Yeah. They've had a lot of conversations about that conflict and it's not going well. You don't end yeah. up with me if your conflict is going well. It has escalated. <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting with me. Um, and one of the things that I get to hear about from people are those other conversations that they had before they got to me. And I get to really see the influence that those conversations had on escalating the conflict. And I don't think that we pay enough attention to the impact that we have on our friends and our family and our coworkers and our clients and customers, depending on what industry we're in, when they come to us and tell us about a major or minor conflict they're having with another person. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of power in those situations. And I don't think that we learn how to use it. And if you are not able to be a helpful listener in those situations, the cost is that people end up breaking relationships, they break up businesses, they end up in litigation, you know, best case scenario, they end up with me, but a lot of them end up in court. And, and it's, it's a huge cost. Uh, I, I love it that we're talking about this. And I, I love it that we're talking about this, especially because the way that I know from knowing you that you approach this stuff is also by understanding the role that stories and stories that our brain makes up can create some mischief. So, Absolutely. yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how all this works in your experience. All right. So I see two main types of unhelpful listeners that, that people tell me about. And one of them is the cheerleader. And we all love our cheerleaders. Your cheerleader tells you that you're right. You, you did everything correctly. That other person's awful. And they do it with the best of intentions. They want you to feel better. They want you to like them. They want to be supportive and helpful. 
and they're not helpful. And the other type <laughs> of unhelpful listener is the devil's advocate. And that person argues with you and challenges you and tells you what the other perspective is. And they also usually have really good intentions. They have a great outside perspective and they want to prevent you from making a mistake. They want to expand your thinking. And they're also not helpful. The person with the cheerleader gets to me believing their story a thousand percent. Yeah. Not at all curious about other perspectives and with a feeling like they need to be right. Their story needs to be right in order for people to sympathize with them. And the person with the devil's advocate, often in that conversation where they're being challenged, they feel like they're not being listened to, like they're not being understood. So they yeah. will start to exaggerate or embellish their story. They often don't even realize it to try to get their listener to sympathize with what they're feeling. Right. And by the time they get to me, they believe this completely made up story. Um, and so to talk about stories, one of the things I tell people is to recognize the danger of letting someone storytell for too long, because, and this goes back to what you were saying about mental health. We yeah. will tell a story about what happened in order to describe how we feel. Uh, and a lot of times I think that's because people are uncomfortable directly saying, I just felt bad. They right. don't think they'll be taken seriously if it's about their feelings. So they'll exaggerate the mean thing the other person said to them in order to express that they felt hurt. And if you let them keep telling that story, they they believe it because we believe our stories as if they really happened. We react to them emotionally inside like they really happened. And there have just been so many studies about how unreliable memory is. And in mediation, you see that because I'll have two people, they'll tell me two totally different stories. They're both telling me the absolute truth as they understand it. As their, right, their truth. So I, I love, I love how much we have sort of evolved in our understanding about memory and you know it used to be that in in court you would bring in all of the eyewitnesses and they would give you their eyewitness testimony and that was you know that that was what we went by because of course these people were there they they know what actually happened Right. And what we have discovered along the way is that eyewitness testimony is is relentlessly untrustworthy because we we change the memories in our brain without even knowing it. Yeah. There's a there's a gentleman who has now passed on by the name of Marcus Borg, and he's a religious scholar and he's from Ireland, but he spent the majority of his adult life here in the United States. And he used to talk about when he remembers learning how to drive with his dad sitting beside him, his memory is that he is sitting on the left side of the car and his dad is sitting on his right. Except this was happening in England where and in, in ireland where he knew intellectually he would have been sitting on the right side of the car and his dad would have been sitting on the left because that's that's how british cars in the are set up but he can't make his memory yeah. of it he cannot make it flip even though he knows it's wrong Right. And and I love that example because it's such a it's such an easy thing and it's something that most people don't get charged up about. Yeah. And when we remember something 
that has emotion attached to it. I love the way that you put that. What we are remembering is how we felt. We're not really remembering the actions, the he said, the she said, the they did, the I did in exact detail because it's all colored by how what I said, what you said, what happened made me feel about Right. And, and depending on how disconnected or uncomfortable someone is with their own emotions, they will be more likely to try to construct a story that really justifies those emotions because they're not comfortable saying, you know, I was just, I was upset and it was a little irrational. That's more uncomfortable for some people than others. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the unreliability of memory, if anyone has a sibling, I'm sure they've had the experience of having some conversation about something the whole family did. And the siblings have totally different recollections of it. It's, it's amazing yeah. how it happens. It is amazing. Yes. And as you said, when there are emotions attached to that, whether their emotions attached to, to that story or whether it's the family dynamic that their emotions attached to, we right. can remember things massively differently. And, and then there can be, you know, hopefully there's humor attached to it, but often there's sadness and anger yeah. and frustration and a feeling of being disrespected or you not belonging or, you know, I mean, we know human beings fundamentally, we only need three things. We need to feel safe. We need to feel like we belong. And we need an experience of dignity. We need to we need to feel respected. And so, you know, when things happen, which they happen all the time, that that confront us in those ways. I remember just over the weekend, my husband and I were having a conversation. He said something that that definitely triggered me. It it wasn't a big thing. But what happened is I felt disrespected. He came to me later, not much later at all. He did a great job, but he came to me later and he said, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. And just saying that, just saying, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings is a huge growth opportunity for him. And so I didn't want to say, and I didn't say in that moment, actually, you didn't hurt my feelings. You had me feel disrespected because those are different, those are different things. And what I really needed to hear was that he got what the impact was. But I also knew like, we are, we are all beings in, in the process of becoming. And what he needed to hear was that, that I heard and accepted his apology, even if his apology wasn't exactly what I needed. So I got to, I got to appreciate his apology and then just to make a decision to let it go. I can't even tell you anymore what it was because I let it go. And, and I think that distinction can be important and can be, can be tricky because we want people to understand the impact over here. And when, what they apologize for, isn't what the impact was over here, then we, we can end up escalating stuff. So so what are some tricks and some tools that you know of that can help us um, when we get our feelings hurt, when we miscommunicate, when we don't, don't do a great job in, in uh, being partners with anybody else? Um, well, you know, when you're, when you're helping someone else who's in a conflict, I always say, 
validate their feelings so that you can so that you can have a conversation that's about how they feel and not about what happened. Yeah. When you're directly involved in the conflict, there is a risk that you validate the wrong feeling and that doesn't go well. You know, when you're the third party, you can validate the wrong feeling and it can actually be really helpful because it can make the person explain to you how they really feel. When you're in the heat of the moment yeah. and you say, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings and really they felt disrespected, that can just make them feel like they haven't been listened to again. And so I always recommend questions. Questions are the thing that you should do before you do anything else. And the more you can explore with curiosity how they feel, and that can be really uncomfortable. You know, you don't want to ask somebody how they feel when you know that you made them feel bad because it. Oops, we lost Lee for just a second. I'm going to uh -oh. hope. I'm going to hope that she's able to come back in quickly. Yeah. Um, so I know that I'm, I'll just riff here for a minute. I know that what she was talking about is, you know, when when we're in the heat of the moment, we want to, you know, we want to do what we can to manage ourselves in that in that time. And we want to ask questions. We want to get curious about what's going on over there. I just, a friend of mine posted this great thing about asking questions. And what she said was, if you're asking a question and if at the end of the question, you could insert the words, you idiot, it's not a great question. So if the question that you're asking is, why did you throw that chair? And you could insert the word, you idiot, at the end, which you could, why did you throw that chair, you idiot? It's, it's not, you're not setting the person up well as a great question. If instead the question is, I can, I can see that, that you got really triggered at that point. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on or what, what was happening for you at that moment? It's, it's harder to put you idiot in than at the end of that question. And so when we're getting curious, we want to, especially if we're the third party, we want to be careful and conscious about how we craft the question so that so that we are genuinely being curious as opposed to asking a question that's actually coming from judgment. We want to ask a question that's coming from genuine curiosity. Welcome back, Lee. Thank you. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. My internet was fine, but screen disappeared. Um, so, no but problem. it sounds like it sounds like you are giving lots of good wisdom. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So, we're talking about questions, and questions yeah. are my favorite thing ever. Um, and curiosity. Yeah, and curiosity is hard. You really have to cultivate your curiosity, and you have to work on that when nothing's wrong. If you are trying to be curious for the first time when you're in an argument, you will fail. You need to be curious when everything's okay. You need to be curious in every part of your life, so it becomes a habit. Right. And, I, you know, I, I love what you just said. If, if you're curious for the first time when you are in an argument, when you're in a heated emotional situation, we, we, we don't do great uh, the first time. And what I, was, what I was sharing with our listeners is that I had a friend who posted this thing that said, um, if you can put you idiot at the end of the question, 
which is, you know, which is sometimes how we ask people questions. Why did you throw that chair? You idiot. Like it, we're coming from judgment as yeah. opposed to coming from curiosity and, and it can be tricky and it can be because, you know, human beings are judgmental creatures. Something happens and our brain immediately makes up a story about what that means. It's, it's how our brains are constructed. It's how we learned to remember stuff before we had, uh, before we had words and before we had, um, books and, and the opportunity to, to document things story enabled our brain to remember. And so our brain immediately makes up stories about why you did what you did, why they did what they did, why that thing happened that way. And if, if I got injured in some way, if I got, if I felt unsafe, if I felt like suddenly I didn't belong, if I, if my dignity got impacted, then I'm gonna come at that story from the place of judgment. There's gonna be a lot of judgment over here about what you did because of how you made me feel. Yeah. And so as somebody who is supporting other people in that situation, so if I'm a manager and one of my employees comes to me and says, hey, this thing happened, and or I'm a, a family member or, you know, but I'm not, I'm not the one who was in the situation. How can we be a good listener? How can we be a good partner to the person who's coming with, with an issue? So the first thing is, is exactly what you said. You need to be non-judgmental, and the best way to be non-judgmental is just to be aware that you're hearing a story and that it's not necessarily what happened and that it doesn't matter if it's what happened because they're telling you how they feel. And if you can keep that in your head, it kind of helps you keep that judge to the side. You're never going to completely eliminate the judge, but you can make it a voice that you recognize and maybe don't act on. Um, the next thing is to validate their feelings, but don't tell them that they're right or wrong about what they're saying. So when they're saying the guy in the next cubicle microwaves tuna in the break room and it stinks and I hate it. You don't say, oh my God, I hate that too, right? Even though you do, <laughs> you say, that must be really unpleasant and distracting while you're trying to work. It's yeah. just a slightly different statement, but it gets them talking more about how they feel and less about how much they can't stand the other person. And, and, then, and why, why is that important? Why is that an important distinction? Um, because if you start validating the facts, you get them more set on the idea that their story is correct. Mm. And you get them into a situation where they feel like they need to give you a fact in order to make you understand them. And so uh. then when they really want you to understand how upset they are, they're going to embellish that story about the other guy. And then they're going to believe their embellished story about the other guy. And all you've done is escalate things for them, even though in the moment they will probably feel better and think you are a good listener. Right. Oh, that's, that's so smart because again, what they're telling you is a story about how they feel, not a story about what actually happened. And so when we focus on the details of the story, the details of what in their mind are the things that happened, especially if, if there were heightened emotions that got involved, they're going to become more invested in that story about 
what actually happened when it may not be really what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, when you get in there, you might find out that that this person is stressed out and distracted for a dozen reasons. The microwave problem is one of them, but it's not the most important one. And if you can get them talking about how they feel, you can often find the problems that really need to be solved. And that doesn't mean the problem that they came to you with doesn't need to be solved. It just is often the tip of the iceberg. And it's very easy to focus on it just because it's what came to you and never to get underneath it to see what's really going on. So Lee, as we're looking at this, and this is uh, from a graphic that you use when you're often um, helping people sort of think through this. So in this section here under asking questions, what are some examples that you can help us think about that might be great? How we can find the, the, the most effective frame to help move the conversation forward. So I like to look at where someone is stuck and you can often see that pretty early in a conversation. You can see that they're feeling like a victim, for example. And so if that's where they're stuck and it's just an example, but if they're stuck in this victim story, then you wanna ask questions that empower them because they can't move forward with problem solving until they're empowered. And mm. if you just tell them, well, you're not a victim, they just feel like you're attacking them. <laughs> so. You want to ask questions that make them feel like they can do something. So some questions I like in that situation, I like to ask, what have you done so far to try to solve this problem? Mm. Because it gets them talking about even, even things that didn't work. They were constructive actions that they took. Mm -hmm. um, it can be helpful to ask if they've ever dealt with anything like this before and what did they do? You want them to tell you some kind of success story and any little bit of success that you can find in what they're telling you and then give them some praise for can really make them feel like they have the power to do something. Often someone who's feeling stuck in a situation isn't able to look at other options. So if you can ask questions that get them to do some option generation, like if someone's stuck in a job that they hate and they feel like they can't get out and it's just awful and everyone they work with is awful and their boss is awful. If you can ask a question like, if you could just have a different career right now, what, what would you want to do? Mm -hmm. It can get them talking about passions and thinking about things outside of whatever they're stuck in. And even if it's totally unrealistic, it changes their mindset and gets them unstuck. Um, so I, I just, I really like to reframe in a way that just gets them out of whatever mindset they're stuck in and somewhere else where we can do something a little bit more creative. And so then once we move them, hopefully out of that mindset, and, and it is so easy for us to get in a victim mindset about something where we, where we feel like we are at the effect of whatever it is that's going on. And in part, it's, it's, such a, it's such a challenge for us because when we are stuck in that place, often we, we are missing one or more of safety, dignity, and belonging. We might be missing all three. And, and so when we, when we get stuck there, as you said, we don't, we can't be generative. We can't come up with how we can move through this. We're just stuck in that dirty diaper. And so like, I mean, I, I say to clients sometimes, so how long do you want to sit in that, <laughs> in that dirty diaper? Um, and it, it's a, it is, it is a graphic image, but it is an image that, that can be helpful sometimes depending upon the person in, in helping them move through it you know if, if they have some level of um self-awareness it's it it can be something that they're like oh 
yeah, I, I might be ready. <laughs> I might be ready to leave, to leave that. One of the things that can also be tricky in this situation is that uh, longtime listeners will know I got very interested about 15 years ago in brain science and and how our brains work and and what's going on up there and and my entrance into the world of uh, neurobiology was actually trying to understand I was I was dating and interested in getting married and like what are these men doing is there is there something that is different about like because a woman wouldn't do that so is there something that's different about our brains and it turns out there is and one of the things that's different is our our default way of listening and so men tend obviously all of this is on a on a spectrum some more than others but in general men tend to listen more through the lens of what's the point what's the problem and if they actually care about you then what do i need to remember about this women tend to listen through the through the lens of how do we connect through this or are we now disconnected threatening belonging and safety and so so the way that we are socialized and, and biologically in our brains, the way that our brains tend to process information can also be a little tricky in this, um, in this domain, especially if I have a brain that has been trained to listen for what's the point and what's the problem. And really what you're saying is the more effective way for me to listen in that in that place is what was the impact on you and and your feelings and how can i help you move through this process yeah it can be it can be really hard to listen that way yeah and and i the the gender split that you mentioned it's funny because women are much more likely to be the cheerleaders and men are much more likely to be the devil's advocate. In my right. Experience. Yes, absolutely. And, and in part, that's because of how we listen. So, you know, if, if we are listening for how do we connect, I'm going to get on your side. I'm going to like, I'm going to say, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. And what a, what a jerk. And, you know, you need to get out of this situation or you know what whatever it is and men are much more likely to move into problem solving because they're listening for what's the problem and then how can i help you solve that problem which then often has them come from that devil's advocate perspective yeah and so how can just like anything we we get to start our journey wherever we're starting our journey and so as we are learning this new skill around listening, maybe from a different place or practicing some new questions, what do you feel like is a good, you know, if someone is, is just starting out in this journey, what's a good way to start practicing? A good way to start practicing, I, I think it's great to start practicing when someone's confiding in you, as opposed to starting to practice when you're in conflict, yeah. because you already have the benefit of being outside it and not being emotionally invested. 
And just being able to pause before you speak is, and it's so hard, right? right? I mean, everyone has trouble with it. But if you can just make that the rule in the next conversation where someone is complaining about something to me, I am going to pause for a beat before I say anything. That gives you the space to make different decisions. Yeah. Um, because we all, we all have some amount of wisdom about how to interact with someone and how to help someone. Yeah. And we get in our way sometimes by, by doing that first thing that, com- that comes to mind and just not giving that second to make a better decision. I, and the I other thing that. I say, especially if you're a devil's advocate, before you give an opinion or, or ask something that's meant to be a little challenging, because it, it's not like that's never a good thing to do. Before you do that, ask two or three more questions. Give yourself permission. After I ask three more curious questions, I can say what I want to say. But if you ask those three questions, I promise you're going to say something different at the end of that every single time. Because that moment when you're itching to say your thing, that's never the time to say your thing. Right. (laughs) Because probably you can put you in it at the end of that. Probably. Yeah. And and it's about you. And it's It's about about you. It's not about them. Right. Yeah. I love that. So I, I love this. A, obviously, if you are seeing this, here is Lee's contact information. We will also put it in the show notes for the podcast. And obviously, this is also at the end of a conversation, we want to, when we can, we want to leave people in a particular place. So Lee, where are we striving to to leave the conversation, leave the person in that conversation? Well, endings, I just think are so important. And in listening situations, often the end is overlooked. It's, oh, I've got to get to my next meeting or, uh, or you realize that you've gone over and, and you're rushing off. And so I always want to leave the conversation with something positive that actually moves the person forward. And it wow. doesn't have to be that you've solved the problem during the conversation. You probably haven't. But at some point, if you were asking good questions, they probably mentioned something that they could do, whether it's something to resolve the situation they're in or just something to make them feel better. They might have said they'd feel better if they could go for a run today or or they think that they should hold off on sending that email until tomorrow. Whatever it is, something good that they're going to do. If you can end the conversation by referencing that thing so that you end it on a note where they're empowered, they're doing something helpful it can be really good for them because it, it lets them go forward from the conversation instead of just going back into that stuck place and looking for someone else to listen to the sad story. Uh, um, yeah. That's, yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Because, you know, when, obviously when we are telling what happened, but really what, what, what we're telling is how it made me feel, then often we want to go tell other people that same story about how we felt. And so when we can leave people, you know, we have, we have such a tendency, especially in our busy world, we have such a tendency to not fully close the loop on, on things and on conversations. And when we can leave somebody in a place of, of forward momentum, as you say, and if there are things left open, I was just with a client. Uh, earlier this morning on a Zoom call, and it's with a fairly large organization. He had uh, 271 managers on a Zoom, 
and the CEO was talking about what's happening with the company and giving some updates about things and doing a little training. And, and at the end of the call, there were, or the end of the Zoom, there were probably a dozen people with their hands up, but he ran out of time. And so I thought, okay, we need to, we need to do a better job when that happens at the end of a conversation in acknowledging, like, I, I see you, I see you have your hand up, we'll follow up. Yeah. Because we, we want to leave people in, in that place of being seen, of knowing that they belong, of feeling safe and secure, of having dignity. And so we want to, we want to, you know, continue to create that forward momentum in whatever we do and, and close those communication loops. Yeah. And that's a great ending. You know, I'll check in with you tomorrow. That's, that's good enough. If no other progress has been made, just that promise, I'll send you an email. I'll make a phone call tomorrow. See how you're doing. Awesome. Well, on that note, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Lee, thank you so much for sharing of your wisdom and of, of all of your great insights about how we can help other people and ourselves, if we tell the truth, move through conflict to resolution. I, I so appreciate your, your brilliance on this topic. Thank you. I appreciated everything that you had to say as well. Awesome. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.